I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Moon Knight. Go back to sleep, worm. Hello? You're not supposed to be here. Yep, I completely agree. Where are you? Surrender the body to Mark. Surrender the body? What body? Oh, the idiot's in control. Well, Stephen Grant of the gift shop. Yeah. Will you return the scarab? Oh, you mean, uh... You will give him nothing. Yeah. Oh, God! Don't you oh. dare drop the scarab! All right, all right, all right! Wake up, Mark. If he loses the scarab, I'll kill you both. Truck, stupid! What? Truck! Did he just throw the gun? I don't know what I'm doing! Then leave us be, parasite. Interesting choice of words. I didn't catch that. It's Konshu who's the parasite. Steven, I could save us, but I can't have you fighting me this time. You need to give me control. Of what, what are you talking about? That thing's about to break through the door. Steven. You gotta give me control, it's the only way. Look at me. You're not gonna die. Let me save us. This episode is about the Marvel TV show Moon Knight, first season, question mark? With us are longtime friends of the show, Chris Finnick. Hello. And Nick Jerugarski. Hello. Okay, so before we start on this, something alarming happened this February 2022 that completely changed the way comics are read. And the severity of this occurrence hit me several weeks later during the last episodes of Moon Knight while I was reading the 2016 storyline Asylum by Jeff Lemire and Greg Smallwood. See, Amazon bought Comixology in 2014, and aside from a slight tweak to the app that meant signing in with your Comixology account or your Amazon account, very little changed. Eventually, you had to kind of commit to just signing in with Amazon, but it was like, you know, this is fine. Like, we're not going to mess with you too much. And then suddenly... Eight years later, seemingly overnight, Amazon changed everything. So the app was updated so that you now had to use the Kindle reader, which is a lot less elegant than the guided view that Comixology pretty much perfected. The original way of reading Amazon Comics was like you got the full page on your tablet, and then when you tapped it, one single panel frame one thing would illuminate but you could like it might even grow a little bit in size but it wouldn't get it wouldn't zoom you in and help you and and let you see all the words much bigger which definitely helps if you're short-sighted like I am becoming as I get older and with a graphic novel or comics format page you can't do the thing that Kindle does which is just increase the font size yeah it also made it very hard to view enormous splash pages which comics are kind of known for they have since kind of brought it to something much more like guided view but they didn't to begin with and it's like you didn't think people might miss that (laughs) it's kind of a merging of both ways of viewing it now rather than being able to pull back out and have each individual page available to you so you could quickly find the place in the comic you wanted to now it's just treating it like a kindle book with a progress bar at the bottom but you do get guided view 
And, and this was a, a way of viewing comics that Comicsology pretty much perfected and allowed you to fine-tune. And on top of all that, comics that you archived over the years suddenly flooded back into your collection. So now, rather than carefully curated, familiar libraries, everyone's collection became awash with free comics and singles alongside identical collected editions. So, like, if you bought the first two issues of some of a long storyline, you're like, you know, I, I like this, and then the next time it turns up as a graphic novel, you, you grab the whole thing, suddenly those two that you put in the archive are now right back there alongside the graphic novel. Or maybe you picked up a whole bunch of indies because you wanted to support independent writers. Like putting them in a cupboard, maybe you'll come back to them later. They may not have been your cup of tea, so you archive them. Now they're back, front and centre, every time you try to look at your collection of comics you do like, overwhelming you with choice that doesn't need to be there. You could only permanently delete them, leading some folks to trash swathes of books that they had bought, only to find that to read them again they'd have to purchase them again. Comixology originals were often also absent because of the sudden changeover, and many folks lost a lot of comics that they legitimately bought for no apparent reason. Wish lists carefully checked over year after year after year, gone. And this didn't have to happen at all. Comixology took several years to develop its setup and fine-tune it. And then there were many, many years of plain sailing with Amazon being relatively hands-off. And all the aspects that I mentioned above could have been caught and amended over time in a beta program that happened over the course of months. And they'd you know, listen to feedback and just tweak it, as opposed to, we're just going to change everything and, uh, yeah, it'll be great. I mean, probably. Amazon's already great, right? Instead, the CEO and creator of Comixology, David Steinberger, quit and moved on, and these changes happened as suddenly as Stephen switches to Mark in Moon Knight, leaving just as much of a mess. It was, to put it mildly, an utter pigfuck that has barely been improved over the past few months, and not just on Comixology, the Kindle app now registers every comic you buy, which won't be that much of a problem for folks who bought graphic novels on Kindle regularly in the past. That happened anyway. If you bought, I got like a Green Lantern book I bought before I found out that Jeff Johns was a piece of shit, and it's in my Kindle collection because I bought it on Kindle. But now every comic I buy will be in my Kindle collection. But unless you don't want your collection of Agatha Christie murder mystery novels to be sat on a virtual shelf mixed in with Witchblade and the X-Men and your Spy X family mangas, you're shit out of luck. They, they mixed all your... and anything that could be considered a book of any kind together. Here's another one, though. I have a first-gen iPad mini that just keeps on going, and on the night that I saw episode 5 of Moon Knight, I tried to download the Comixology app, only to be told that they couldn't give me the newest update, but would I like the last one compatible with this iPad, which is quite old. So I said yes, downloaded it, and I was overjoyed to find the old Comixology app working smoothly as ever, with my library sorted, remembering my places in each book. And there was a notice on the front page that said, Comixology and Amazon working together in 2014, coming soon. It was like a threat. And I downloaded a bunch, and I read some, and I actually cried a little bit because I was so happy not to have lost this, and I had found a way back from digital extinction. And then when I came back after a few minutes of talking about this on the Discord with you folks, I got the blue screen of death on my iPad mini telling me to update this app and lying to me that it was no longer usable. It was, it was basically, it was a catch-22 situation. Oh, this app is no longer usable, but I, I, was, I was just using it. You got to update it. Okay, update it. Oh, this iPad can't update it. Okay, can I, can I, can I 
go back to it was not functioning before, which was functioning, and, and just do that? Nah. I promise I won't buy anything from Comixology. I'm literally unable to. Their website no longer exists. You absorbed them. You won't lose any money. And every comic I buy on Amazon still turned up in that app. I bought some Doctor Strange in a sale before Multiverse of Madness. I was about to start reading Damnation. So it was win-win for both of us. I was able to read Comixology the way I always wanted. They were able to make sales. Everyone was happy. But that wasn't good enough for them. As the great Jim Stephanie Sterling has said, these companies don't just want all the money in the world. They also want all the money they imagine exists. On top of that, everything is never enough. To me and my blue screen of death, unable to read any comics on this old iPad. Suddenly even though I was just two minutes before. The prompt just took me back to the App Store, which stared at me unable to update. The graphic novels, including Moon Knight Asylum and Company, were still downloaded onto my iPad's memory. I just wasn't allowed to read them. And I deleted the app and contents, and I, I figured out that it might be that it was being online that prompted this blockage. Like, after you've read for a bit, then you shut it down, you turn it on. It sends a little message to Amazon going, Help! Help! Someone is using the old ways! So then I re-downloaded the entirely usable app, downloaded a few books and went straight to settings, deactivated the Wi-Fi connection, read for a little while more, closed the app, restarted the iPad and got the blue screen of death. Even though I wasn't online, deeply encoded in that old app is a line of code that breaks it on purpose and tells you that since you also can't load the Kindle app, or even an older version of the Kindle app on the first-gen iPad mini, that there will be no reading for me on this Steve Jobs-era device. That's it. No more reading. But who cares? Read on my new iPad, right? Why should old devices keep working? We have accepted timed, purposeful obsolescence. Like electronic-brained tractors that can no longer be repaired by hand due to copyright laws. You do not own the tractor technically, so you cannot alter it. Even if you're good with engines, you they have to be sent in for repair or replaced by the newest tractor, violating the Sherman Act and forcing farmers to have to hack their own damn tractors. There's currently a class action lawsuit going to uh, to get this thing reversed so that, so that farmers can work on analog machinery. Here's the problem. Amazon owned and presided over by a man likely to become the world's first trillionaire which is underlined in red because it's not a word recognized by my spell checker because it's a thing that should not be it's lovecraftian <laughs> amazon have made it incredibly difficult to run a bookstore small or large brick and mortar they have cornered the market audible audible is advertised on every other youtube video and podcast now, Audible. In 2018, I added nine new chapters to my second book, Secret Rooms, from 2015, making a definitive edition. It, it felt a little light, and I wanted to bring it up to the, the richness and quality of later books that I'd written, and it, it definitely, definitely improved that book. And I wanted to give that to everyone who had bought it before. If you had bought the Kindle version of the original 15-chapter version, I could not send you those nine chapters even if I wanted to, and I did want to. I asked the Kindle bot, can I do this? And they went, we don't think it's important enough. I'm like, what level of importance is required for me to be able to push these nine chapters I want my readers to have? Like, they crystallize in amber, the version you bought. This means I actively discourage people from buying my books on Kindle. I don't even own my own books on Kindle for this fucking reason. 
you can buy a whole bunch of my more recent books right now in paperback only because I've got to wait until I finish the audio drama, make the final tweaks to the digital version and hope I don't need to go back and change it again because if you buy it, it's locked like that. You can always buy another paperback if you want the revised edition. You can't buy it on Kindle a second time. On a side note, I sell these paperbacks at cost. I don't make a dime from Amazon. I use the money we get from Patreon every month to fund these projects. I turn money into art. And Amazon are like, why? I like money. Yeah. I like money, though. I like money. I like money. I like money. Can't believe you like money, too. But I also uploaded the original 15 chapter version of Secret Rooms to Audible. And Audible won't allow me to update the existing chapters with remastered audio. I can't add the nine new chapters. I can't edit the book or even remove it from their servers until 2025. Until the year 2025, the future. Ten years after it went on, they have books sewn up. And for their digital contracts, like Kindle, they pay the authors a paltry 35%. This is something I think most people don't know. The average Amazon book deal, such as it is, you stick your book on and they go, do you want 70%? Uh, that sounds very generous. What do I have to give up for that? Well, you can only publish it here. That sounds restrictive, especially since I'm an indie author. Uh, you got any other deals? Yeah, 35%. And you can publish it anywhere else if you like. So comic authors and comic writers are now finding out that they previously had completely different deals and now they're on 35% like the rest of other indie authors. Off the cover price. Amazon effectively own reading. And they can do whatever shitty, disorganized thing they like with anything adjacent to the medium and control the whole thing with robots who aren't going to respond to you like a person would. Plus their search function is absolute garbage. I looked for Moon Knight, the latest hit Marvel TV show, and the third option down was an explicit erotic novel by a lady named Stephanie Moon. I, I, I've, I've now defaulted to using Google Images. I, I check for the book I'm after, I need to know what it is already, and I check that the address is amazon.co.uk and that it'll take me to the digital version, not one of the many trade paperbacks that is a completely different separate listing, and I click on that. Because it's way better and more incisive and I'm not going to get Porn. Their conduct, their business practices, their tight-fisted monopolizing, it is absolutely disastrous to human culture. Everybody loves to rag on Disney, and they deserve it. But what Amazon have got away with over 20 tax-free years is frightening and truly insidious. We have absolutely no safeguards against them ejecting all previously purchased digital books and making everything a subscription service like Marvel and DC offer, which is great if you are just starting out. Like, it's the uh, Spotify and the Netflix. Like, uh, you, you talk to young people now and you're like, hey, you, you're interested in Blu-rays, young people? And they're like, what, like like a disc that you put in a... You, you have to use your hands? That's like a baby's toy. And it's like, I'm looking at my giant library of Blu-ray discs and going, yeah, you know what, I feel like, uh, you know, just, just using Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or Hulu is a lot neater. You don't have to have so much stuff. If you're brand new and you don't have a massive collection of music as well, same thing with Spotify. If all you have is discs, how are you supposed to watch them in the house you don't mm. have? And I thought of another thing to add to this next bit while I was trying to sleep last night. It sucks just a little bit if you bought a paper comic collection, then said goodbye to it, 
bought them all again in graphic novel form. I forgot that step. I had loads of paper comics, then I upgraded them to trade paperbacks, then I sold them too and bought them all on digital format, only to find that the business model of simulating the buying of a story to keep is no longer economically viable. I never owned or had those books, they just gave me the licenses to them for as long as they felt like it, until it was an inconvenience. I would cling to my hard copy, but my third Xbox One died recently and Microsoft aren't making that console anymore, so to play those discs, I had to buy one second hand or invest rather heavily in a Series X with a disc tray. Side note folks, one of our friends on the uh, Discord bought, went out of their way to buy a PlayStation 5 with the disc tray, which is very hard to come by now with the chip shortage. On top of the fact that the pre-orders were completely gutted by scalpers hoarding all the PS5s and the top-level PS5 Pro is way more expensive than the regular kind without a disc tray. So our buddy who paid top dollar, like a week or two into owning it, the disc tray stopped working. So may as well just have bought the digital edition. Microsoft and Sony don't really want us to buy even the expensive console with the disc tray. They would rather I went all digital. And soon, they would rather I just threw them a subscription fee for every month, same as every other grasping digital service, turning art into badly organized endless content as they conglomerate a bunch of subscriptions into what now feels like cable channel packages overwhelming us with choice, but never allowing us to call something our own. It's all just paying for temporary, tenuous, timed online access. Depending on the medium, there is no way to entirely safeguard your every library in the same way. And that disturbing notion keeps me up at night. Because since this happened several months ago, very little has been done to bring it closer to the well-oiled machine comicsology was before. And like, if you go looking for articles, they're all dated, like February, March 2022, nothing for May. And here's the kicker, folks. Because we comic nerds bitch about everything all the time, this early warning signal is not gonna be heard by the rest of our civilization who rightly and understandably tune us out. We're your canaries down the mine, folks. Cough, then fall over dead. You scratched my car! Where? Right there! Oh, there. That's already there. You! You liar! You know what I'm gonna do about this? What? Nothing! Because if I take it to small claims court, it'll just drain eight hours out of my life, and you probably won't show up. And if I finally got the judgment, you'd just stiff me anyway. So what I'm gonna do is piss and moan like an impotent jerk, and then bend over and take it up the tailpipe! You've been here before, haven't you? So, let's get to a proper question, shall we? We had planned a Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness episode for this weekend. We were gonna do Moon Knight last weekend, but I saw that film less than 14 hours after the grand finale of Moon Knight, and I was still reeling from Moon Knight. And a lot of what I was reeling from came as a result of what felt like the mishandled psychological effects of trauma. And then I had to take everything to do with wonder on board. I overloaded. And Sharon, who went to see it after me, 
was frankly furious with what happened in Strange 2. So we're going to need a bit of time to come to terms with all that. We don't just want to do an angry, shouty podcast, and we don't want to overwhelm all the good stuff. I think the first thing you said was, wow, that was the most Sam Raimi film that Sam Raimi has ever Sam Raimi done. I'm like, that is absolutely true. (laughs) And it made me laugh when everybody else said mostly the same thing. I visualised an infographic of of how how this polarising movie has affected people. It's like, imagine a mountain with a valley on either side, and if on one side of the valley you're going, oh my God, Sam Raimi, and you're so happy, and it's that smiling gif. And then on the other side, it's, oh my God, Wanda, on the other side. And you're screaming, Wanda, like spawn. And I, I'm, like, I fell backwards onto the tip of that mountain, and it snapped me into a, an inverted V shape. And that's me on <laughs> Doctor Strange 2. So, like I said, we need a bit of time to come to terms with that. It will be two months before it's on Disney+, and that should be around when Thor, colon, Love and Thunder is hitting cinemas, but not quite at the end of Ms. Marvel. See, that's the thing. There'll be like three Marvel things we've got to think about all at the same time. That leads me to my next point, which is to chat with the group about the state of the MCU right now. Let me just reel off some titles. <clears throat> WandaVision. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Black Widow, which launched at the climax of Loki, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, What If, Spider-Man Far From Home, which launched near the end of Hawkeye, Moon Knight, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Ms. Marvel, She-Hulk, Wakanda Forever, and by the end of 22, we will all collectively have viewed about 44 hours of Marvel. More specifically, Sharon and I have had to come up with stuff to say about 44 hours of Marvel. We're in a slightly rarefied position. It's like when people were like, hey, buddy, I like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's like, yeah, but have you ever had to go deep on analysis on Raiders of the Lost Ark and then move across to Temple of Doom and try to like aim the same critical eye at that lesser film it's much more fun if you're not having to think about it too much so 44 hours of marvel folks movie quality tv and movies often of the same quality or maybe a little lower than their tv output the main difference being how many sittings and viewings are allotted on release but the line is now so blurred that i showed sharon and willow The Eternals in my re-edited five-part series over a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and it was better. If you start watching the first three phases of Marvel's Infinity Saga, starting with 2008's Iron Man, you would be somewhere around Ant-Man and the Wasp when you got to your 44th hour, and that was over a period of a decade. Late 2018, folks. This, starting with WandaVision, is two years. We're not even at the two-year mark yet. At the end of this year, at the Wakanda Forever phase, it will have been two years. This means that we are getting the stories fed to us at five times the speed of their pre-pandemic cinematic heyday. So the simple question is, how are you folks feeling about this? I would just like to add that (laughs) it is worth remembering that there were TV shows woven into the previous 44 hours. Yeah, there are going to be people going, hey, 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 what about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Absolutely, and I'm just saying this for their benefit. Yes, there were. But. But they were divided between different platforms for a start. Netflix, ABC. ABC? It was ABC. ABC. It was ABC. And I believe Agent Carter was on Hulu. 
Yes, we saw it on Hulu. Remember, Samuel L. Jackson kept interrupting to, to sell, us sell us credit cards and DiGiorno. Mm-hmm. Can't even buy DiGiorno in the UK. We were using a VPN for that, never again. <laughs> but the, the point being that all of that TV was not... Oh, hang on, are you getting emotional? I just got to admit, do an advertisement for some frozen pizza. This episode was not brought to you by, I don't know, Haribo. Sorry, I have spoken so much, you talk. <laughs> it's okay. But that was not all coming down the same pipeline at you, and it certainly mm. wasn't all woven into the Infinity Saga. Definitely not. The stuff that happened in movies affected the TV shows, but the stuff that happened in TV shows did, did not, not affect, affect the movies. movies. No, same because as Venom. They, were, they were not expecting it to go both ways. Now, however, I would posit that the, the fact that Marvel has the Disney Channel as their own captive platform... It's not the Disney Channel, it's Disney+. Plus. But it is the Disney Channel. But it Channel. is the Disney Channel, let's face it. So, they, But the point being that they have their own platform where they can put on their own stuff and they have proven... The Blackjack and Hookers? No, neither of those <laughs> things. Neither of those things is Disney. What do you think this is? But they are willing to use that as an alternative to the cinema networks if that proves inaccessible for mm. some reason. Uh, I, I will say it definitely feels kind of like a, like a shotgun blast, of, but of fun. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a lot of content, but I'm kind of enjoying it, especially as like someone, you know, like the rest of us read comics. So like you always had all this stuff happening all at once. And so it kind of feels like that mm. more now that we got all the movies and all the TV shows and they're all interwoven with each other. But it is a little exhausting. It is like we are there was there's definitely moments where like we go months without not having marvel content <laughs> yeah you know we uh went for the through the first three phases with what 23 films and now in the past year and a half we've gone through all of that all over again and you know i have to admit i'm beginning to feel tendrils of burnout from so much content mm. i feel like uh marvel and disney are taking advantage of their uh home platform to uh, give the uh, population the instant gratification and payoff that they have come to expect. Uh, But I personally like a little bit more time to sit and think about the last thing that I watched. Mm -hmm. Um, It's one of the reasons why I haven't gone out and watched Multiverse of Madness yet. I'm still digesting what, you know, I just watched with Moon Knight. And it's been uh, uh, well over a week now since Multiverse came out. mm Right. So I, I personally, you know, I'm not going to suggest that they stop what they're doing. Obviously, it's working, it's successful, and a lot of people are enjoying it. But just because the content is there, I'm not going to seek it out right away every time. I might pace myself a little bit. I do think they are going to end up tripping themselves. I don't think it's necessarily going to happen straight away. But their their current approach is not going to change anytime soon. I don't know what the cost of living situation is in America, but it has definitely been reported in the UK 
that with uh, gas and electricity prices going up and food increasing in cost because of various things going on around the world uh, that means that it's, it's harder to get the food in the first place and all of the things that are, are adding expense families are reconsidering their subscription services and I mean Netflix has already lost a lot in terms of, of share value over the last few weeks because of this and I think Disney would be foolish not to try and make sure that their content and the, the rate at which they add new stuff is enough that they can continue to have people think, well, if I'm only going to keep one subscription service, it makes sense for it to be Disney, because then there's something on there for the adults, there's something on there for the kids. It is cheaper than Netflix. I think it's a, it works out a bit more expensive than Amazon Prime, but it's cheaper than Netflix in the UK. And the fact that they have this wide range of material that they can continue filling it up with which is all high quality stuff i'm not gonna not gonna criticize on that but if they want to maintain that water cooler effect which is what netflix banked on for so long then they're gonna have to be careful because if they get to the point where they have oversaturated with so much new stuff that like you said nick people just haven't got the time to be able to watch everything all in the same week like everybody does then they're not talking about it constantly like everybody does then they don't have that free advertising on social media that they're, they're taking advantage of right now mm. so I, I think they're going to carry on doing what they're doing i think they might even step it up a little bit but i think eventually they are going to trip on that yeah I'm, i think you know it does help that they don't do the uh typical uh all at once episode dump that netflix does one episode a week gives mm. us time to you know sit and, and digest everything and talk about it with each other um and you know specifically for the mcu i think Moon Knight is uh, saved a little bit from the, the burnout I was talking about because it feels so disconnected from the rest of the MCU. Mm. You know, there's very little that connects it to the rest of that universe besides a couple of Easter eggs, at least as far as I was able to uh, suss out when I was watching it. So uh, that helped a little bit for me. Just for another thought about not, not even the pace, but like the way phase four feels weird is mm -hmm. just like we're, we've got all this content and we we're still not clear where we're going yeah because like phase one was we're all going to the avengers and then phase two and three was it's all going to infinity war mm -hmm. and i i don't know where we're going other than vague ideas we're probably going to do young avengers at some point at the end of Avengers, you got the Thanos stinger, and uh, everyone not into comics went, oh my god, who's that? And I went, oh my god, the Red Skull? He got thrown into the cosmos, where was he? But then that became a Thanos coming, and then they really reminded you of that uh, in uh, Age of Ultron. And yeah, we're leading up to that, but there's actually a whole bunch of different ways they could go right now. Where you know, Sharon and I have been predicting like a second civil war with the... Uh, the the remaining and successor adult Avengers on one side, and the this group of refreshingly mostly female young Avengers on the other side, and there could definitely be a generational divide of what they want to do and where they want to take their abilities regarding helping the world. 
And, you know, that would be rich drama, especially as almost every kid has some kind of equivalent on the uh, the adult side. And having those clashing, that would be electric. I'm less interested in where Secret Invasion goes, because that seems very plotty and very... Bob Chipman put his chips on, rather than it being secret scrolls pretending to be established superheroes, established heroes, but from another plane of the multiverse, and these ones are evil for some reason. The other thing is, of course, Kang. And Loki seemed to give us like a Thanos moment of, yeah, Kang's coming. And he's obviously going to be the ma a major focus of both Quantumania and I'm going to guess be in the Fantastic Four as well. I mean, the other unspoken thing is everyone's going, when are the mutants coming? When are the mutants coming? You've had Fox for all these years. Where are the mutants? So for me, it feels like not so much a diminishing quality. It's definitely a jump up in quantity and, the, the, like I said, the speed with which we're getting it. It's a diminishment in focus, I think. Yeah. And it doesn't help that they have become incredibly reactive in the sense of mm. uh, if a character who is... Agatha getting her own yeah, show because she got memefied. A character who gets talked about immensely and then they're like, ooh, maybe we should do a show for that character. Meanwhile, shows they planned mm. and seeded that didn't take off on social media quietly get slipped under the rug to maybe be come back to later. And I think that's what will... It will look like that's happening. There'll be ideas they had that they wanted to develop that they take off the boil because they didn't get a strong enough response. Hmm. Like a soap opera crossed with Big Brother. The more social media engagement that character gets, the longer they get to stay in. Strengthening the brands through memes. And this episode is brought to you by Frozen Pizza. DiGiorno or Delivery? DiGiorno or Delivery? DiGiorno. Taste for yourself why the shortest distance between you and a delicious fresh-baked pizza is your oven. 100% real cheese. Amazing toppings. Thankfully, it's not delivery. It's DiGiorno. Nestle, good food, good life. Oh, and by the way, uh, Nestle recommend that nursing mothers in the third world switch to their own infant formula milk products, leading to the alleged deaths of about 1.5 million babies each year as a result of formula being mixed with contaminated water. Nestle, good food, good life. DiGiorno. And that will make it feel even less focused and even less like they have a definite trajectory yeah. in mind. Also, uh, what kicked off... Uh, phase one was Tony Stark and what kicked off the Avengers being a team was Steve Rogers and what kept a solid foundation throughout all of phase two and three was Steve and Tony and then by the end of phase three we were like wow Thor's really come into his own for this one what about Black Widow and phase four has been about everyone and no one if anyone's defined Phase 4, it's Wanda, the first person that we, we kind of... In terms of the fallout and loss incurred to everyone during Infinity War and Endgame, and the five years in between that she disappeared during, and could have been coming to terms with her grief with everyone left, it's Wanda. She has an extraordinary trauma and response. And that's what Phase 4 feels like, movies and TV response to the trauma of phases one through three, which from a real world reeling from collective trauma that's still happening, really needs to be handled delicately. 
Disney Marvel did not intend to do nothing in 2020 at all, none of us intended to do nothing in 2020. So that obviously stepped up their game in terms of like releases, but then they reacted to the pandemic by greenlighting more. As you say, a lot of this is more reactive. At the moment, I'm, we are absent a foundation and it makes me miss what we had before more intensely. So, that doesn't necessarily take away from Moon Knight, which I thought was mostly very strong. Who is Moon Knight in the comics? Uh, well, Moon Knight, as a lot of people like to joke, is Batman. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, please don't make him Batman. just Batman, but Marvel. And they didn't. It was, it, yeah, it's it's interesting that they, they basically what they jettisoned was all of that stuff, like everything that makes him kind of Batman, which is like he has like a fucking moon shaped helicopter that he flies around in. The moon copter. The moon copter, which I, I think that just the hey, sometimes he can just fly was a better idea than just <laughs> giving him a moon shaped helicopter. And yeah, that that, that seems to be the, the biggest difference. Is like in the so comics. like he lives in an apartment and he goes out and he fights street crime. Yeah, basically, but With he's also throwing bananas. Yeah, his his, his throwing moons is what I like to call them because they're throwing stars with their moon mm, shapes. His, his batarangs. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> By the way, you know that bit when he's about to kill Ethan Hawke and he holds those that that banana up and it's sort of poking out both sides of his fist. That is like shot for shot, frame for frame. Christian Bale's Batman holding two batarangs and Rachel Ghoul's there, and he's like, "I'm not gonna kill you," and then he throws them backwards. But I don't have to save you, so I'm gonna kill you by proxy. I'm leaving. It was the same shot, and it basically tells us in cinematic language he's not gonna do it. Yeah. So when you look at it, he's a weird confluence of ideas because he's you know he's batman but he's also you know the avatar of an egyptian deity and uh a lot like they used to they used to play around a lot apparently with the idea that Khonshu wasn't even real which is something i'm glad they didn't do because does it make sense when like thor is over there we see him he's running around are we really going to question if this egyptian god is also real He was created by Doug Moench and Don Perlin to be an antagonist character in Werewolf by Night number 32 in August of 1975. And his very muddled what is real and what isn't series of backstories have kind of fluctuated over the years depending on the writers. This is reminding me of Sentry, who's a, a, a sort of a 2000s character mm-hmm. that they kind of worked backwards into the continuity and said he was an Avenger and fought with them. And he's got kind of like Superman, but Apollo powers. He's very sun-based. Or yeah. is he just insane and remembering false memories? And also it turns out that the, the evil villain he's been fighting is actually him. And it's very similar to the point where if they do do this, they're going to have to make it markedly different to Moon Knight, especially for sensitivity reasons, because it's the same fucking thing we keep reading. Initially in the comics, uh, the the alternate identities was more of like, like the actual comparison is the Shadow, who also had a bunch of like, I'm dressing up as this dude, and I'm dressing up as this dude, and they both had billionaire playboy mm. uh personalities and, and not like initially Stephen Grant was just Stephen Grant was the Bruce Wayne face and oh. he was 
yeah, that's that's one of the biggest changes. He was the Bruce Wayne, and you know somehow Mark was able to parlay whatever money he made as a mercenary into being a billionaire playboy. I don't I, know. I was just gonna say there a is billionaire a mercenary. world of difference between being a billionaire playboy pretending to be a street vigilante and being a street vigilante trying to convince everybody that you are also a billionaire playboy. Hey, I'm Lamont Cranston. I'm gonna wreck your house. Very similar. It's it's Lamont Crash Cranston in the in the original Shadow Stories is also not his real name. Mm. It's, it's the same thing oh. as Steven. Yeah. Thinking about the Sentry, by the way, sorry to drag it back to this other yeah. character. I, it, it, they, they could do it quite well by just basically having footage from the Avengers and the Spectre lands beside Thor. It's like, where do we go now, Thor? And like maybe even work in some like extra stuff which makes it look like it was shot on the set of the Avengers and, and get Chris Hemsworth for one day to go, well, go over there and hit them with your sun powers. And it's like, whoa, was this guy actually there and the whole world forgot him? That's intriguing. Like they, they, Marvel have the ability to cleverly do that. It would it, be an interesting idea, definitely, if they could pull it off. Mm. Just try to Berenstein bear the entire human race to believing this guy has always been here. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of special about uh, Steve, uh, Mark, and we're going to need to talk about Jake at some point, uh, the, the, this character, he's a, a rare Jewish superhero. There really aren't many. And uh, is, is Oscar Isaac actually Jewish? I really should have done this fucking research. No. Okay. I, I don't believe he is. I, I think I looked into it. I don't yeah. believe that the, the interesting thing that the doubly interesting thing is that it's, he's also potentially like no one's ever, it's not directly said, he's potentially a rare uh, Hispanic Jewish superhero mm. because uh, Oscar he's Guatemalan, is yeah. Guatemalan, but both the actors who played his parents are also of a Latin descent. Nice. So the implication is that they are like of the Latin Latin America, but also Jewish, which is mm. a combination that does exist, but is Absolutely. rarely ever talked about. Yeah, yeah. I really did appreciate the fact that the the way they presented Mark Stroke Stephen as being Jewish was. I think the way I described it to you was: it's not exactly subtle, but it's casual. It's mm. not something that is. Uh, placed in a way that has to be talked about mm. to make it clear, but it is very clear in just the things that surround him. The fact that when his mother dies, he has to go back for the shiver yeah. and he's wearing a yarmulke. And- which he pulls off in frustration exactly, and beats. Yeah. Which, is a, which is a very visually striking thing. That's a, you know, that's potentially somebody having a crisis of faith. Yeah. But it's all done in a a way that is significant to the character, but mm. not necessarily being made a big visual deal of. There's also the fact that he's a uh, a Jewish character imbued with mythological Egyptian powers. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. yeah. And I like that they show this to us rather than, you know, exposing it to us. Uh, you know, we just get to live in the moment with him as, you know, we go through these uh, experiences with him throughout his life. Uh, you know, we get other uh, representation later on with uh, Layla. Mm. And that little bit, there is, a, you know, a little bit more on the nose. They they come out and say it. 
But uh, here, you know, like Sharon was saying, it's just part of the background. We we just get to live with Stephen and Mark, well, more Mark, I guess. Mm. And uh, I, I like that we weren't hit over the head with it. We can talk about performances now. Uh, Oscar Isaac was fucking fantastic, mm-hmm. I will say. In the same way that the treatment of Wanda in uh, uh, Strange 2 was troublesome to me, absolutely no no word against Elizabeth Olsen's amazing performance. And Oscar Isaac here puts in a whole bunch of performances. I, okay. I, I, I remember getting asked around Mary Poppins' time when we covered that, uh, do you find the Dick Van Dyke uh, accent uh, insulting, being British? And I've always found it extremely lovable. And one of, for me, some of the funniest stuff that we hate movies do is when they lapse into British idioms and, and like doing a very loud uh, British accent. Oh, I made my name my dog Pongo, did I? <laughs> Hello, Pongo. What you're leaving out, though, Steve, is that the way we are told both Purdy uh, and Anita are expecting is this fucking creeptacular version of Nanny who's just like, Oh, I'm looking at that dog, and that dog's radiating all sorts of energy. She must be pregnant. She, oh, is this- I had your two dog <laughs> fucking. Like, uh, Americans doing British things just tickles me for some reason. But <laughs> Oscar Isaac's performance was so fucking pitch perfect. He could walk into a London pub and absolutely totally fit in with anyone there. It wasn't just his accent. It was his candor. It was his easiness with other people around. Like, as gay as, like, he's just kind of... He really separated the, 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 the two distinct personalities so that we could most definitely see who was in control at each time. Mm. One thing that he does very well as well, which is often a failing, I think, of, of Americans trying to do British, mm. is that so many people seem to equate... Sorry, so many American people particularly seem to equate British with posh. Queen's English, exactly. received pronunciation. People doing British accents in a very sprawling and casual and sleepy and uh, ticked off. And, oh, fucking hell, that yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. That makes it feel more real because we don't all talk like Prince Charles. Yeah. But uh, that, there was no point in the... Uh, it's almost to the overall show's detriment that his performance was so real... I doubted Mark the whole time. <laughs> That's why I was at the end. I was like, "Oh, Mark was oh, the his American real accent's one? not very good." Uh, wait, no, no, not, not that his American accent <laughs> no, wasn't very no, good. No. It's just that his his character was so likable. Like when he st- so when he became Mister Knight and he was doing his sort of goofing around, I got flashes of Deadpool because you can really see the actor physically performing when they're in costume and they're supposed to be intimidating, but they're just kind of goofy with it. And I was just like, I am so happy that this is not just Batman in white. And I just watched The Batman. So I was like, I was coming away from The Batman going, oh my God, imagine if Moon Knight was just, I am vengeance, I am the knight, I am Moon Knight. And I'm like, we've, we've got that. We've had it so many times. They're doing stuff with this, which I just relished. And uh, this was around the same time that, that some folks on the uh, Discord were like, I kind of wish he was just the vigilante. And I'm like, I can see what you like if you were used to that version in the comic, but the only version I read in the comic 
was um, the Asylum storyline, which, which is actually not dissimilar to this. It's it's. Uh, who else managed to get to read some of this, by the way, the Steve Lemire stuff? Uh, I read the first volume. Okay. That was the only one I could get off of Comixology. And it does feel like the last third of the, the series here mm. takes a lot from that uh, that uh, book or series of books. There's a lot um, of I, sudden jarring changes of venue and setting as, as like, it's like, no, that wasn't real. This is real now. The art style often reminded me of Neil Gaiman's Sandman of all things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, his uh, portrayal between Mark and Stephen, uh, obviously Mark is the more serious, brooding one. Actually, the the scene at the end revealing Jake took that performance down a little bit for me because I was then going back and wondering, you know, these few little moments where you see his face kind of mask over and Mm. become very dark. Is that Jake? And I saw that a lot on not so much on Discord, but other places online, people are saying, oh, we saw Jake here, you know, and that diluted it a little bit for me. Not to say that the performance wasn't fantastic. Mm. Uh, Oscar Isaac gave multiple fantastic performances, but now we're questioning uh, who was it that we saw. Mm. Yeah, I, I honestly don't think, for, for my money, and we've watched it twice now, mm. I don't think we see Jake. Not much. We see the consequences of Jake a couple of times, but I don't think, apart from maybe a fleeting moment here and there, we see him as Jake in the the body of the series. It helped the whole time that we had this sudden cavernous Bane-style voice, almost, of, was it F. Murray Abraham playing Konshu? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, the idiot is in charge. If nothing else, I was watching it and going, wow. I've been saying for years now that Sony have been massively underachieving with Venom. This kind of cements it. There is so much that they could be doing with Venom, and they aren't. They're just making the most basic version of what they could make. And, you know, people like it. That's fine. But it could be so much more. This is definitely Steven's show. Mm. Like, when he's when Oscar Isaac's doing Mark, he's just kind of doing less charming Poe Dameron. But he's really <laughs> trying. I know what you mean there. But but he's really trying with Steven. He's really doing a character. It's, it's actually interesting to hear you guys say that that his accent is really good because I thought the point was that his accent is overdone because Steven Nah, we've been in a lot of The only thing that was off is that um, people are a bit more rude to him than they would be in London. Like that, the the pet shop uh, uh, lady, she wouldn't be like, no, you fucking take your fish and piss off with it. Sling your hook. Go eat some sweets with your rotten teeth. I don't think it's that people in in reality are less rude in Britain. They're less intense about it. His boss and the pet shop lady, they're they're so in his face about how rude they're being to him. Oh, his boss is like a woman out of EastEnders. Yeah. But British people are way more casually rude. Like, it's just a passing thing. It can be really rude, but it's almost like the, the rudeness comes in the ignoring you than in the in the insulting you. Finest performer in the whole thing? Little old lady in the lift. The the bit oh. where he's kind of freaking oh, out and yeah. she's just sort of staring forwards and he does the British thing, which is to go, just, you know, world's coming to an end, can't complain. Uh, and she's like, in that kind of, like, that is... 1000% accurate. Little old ladies, as soon as they get a little bit like, I need to get out of here, they start kind of like fumbling with their purse and like trying to get out the door. Not that I chase little old ladies. <laughs> I was just going to say, this sounds a little but bit too. I, I've seen the way people in England become, I am so uncomfortable, I've got to get out of here. We do it all the time. And she was just bringing it. Mm, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 
the, the thing I find, one of the most fascinating things I found about the whole show is that, you know, despite this show introducing a character that most people don't know about, like, I was only super peripherally aware of Moon Knight before the show started. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's really Steven's origin story. Because most of it's told from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Mark's already set up, and we find out about it later. Mm. But it, it's really about Steven finding, like, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? It, it, he's the protagonist, basically. Yeah. Mark is just more of a supporting character. It's really Steven's story. And I guess his the origin of Mr. Knight as a superhero. Yeah. They could just have called it Mr. Knight. I always love uh, what um, Marvel on screen does with costumes. Sometimes there's quite a lot of like vertical lines on the chest or like uh, on the face. But if, if someone's completely green like Gamora, they give them some like lovely little like sort of facial, uh, almost like tattoos just to sort of break up the block of green. But the texture on the Mr. Knight suit is above and beyond. They could just have put him in a white suit, but they gave it that lovely kind of... Uh, like almost like drapery looking texture to it. It's 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 it works wonderfully in HD. Mm. I like the fact that but, his Moon Knight suit is bandages as well. Mm-hmm. I gotta I, say, for my money, Stevens uh, Moon Knight suit better suit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a little more interesting. It's a little more white. I think. I think the the Moon Knight costume is like you know supposed to evoke mummies, so it's a little more off white. But like the Mister Knight suit is like pure white. Well, having to make uh, Mark's Moon Knight suit almost entirely CG, we see CG stuff all the time, and a part of our brain just kind of shuts off and stops looking, because we're like, we'll probably see this arm from a different perspective at some point, and we can maybe get a a look at the uh, texture then, but, you know, I'm not really admiring a costume at that point. And that's wrong, because ultimately it's still been modelled in 3D, it's still been very meticulously designed. It's just that, you know, when we see a, a, a mummy CG greebly, part of our brain goes back to The Mummy and various other series that lean a bit too hard, hard on not fantastic CG. My purpose, personal favorite detail is they, they did the, the classic I'm wearing a mask, my eyes are white now by mm. just having Mark and Steven's eyes glow white yeah. when he's in, you know, in superhero mode. And I thought that was really cool. The the other thing is that Steven is a hapless boob. And every time he gets in over his head, his response is always, yeah, I just want to get out of here. Just, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you the thing. You take it. I'm fine. I'll just, you know, let us get his. And just, he doesn't want to be in a fight. That's, again, that's kind of Eddie in, in, in Venom. But the dynamic is that he's also trying to work out the mystery of why the fuck he's here in some Eastern European village. Which brings us to Harrow. I've heard ups and downs on this character. Ethan Hawke's uh, uh, previous avatar of Khonshu? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So so what did you th- what did we think of Ethan Hawke's performance, his character, how it was fleshed out? I mean, I like Ethan Hawke's performance. He's a good actor. He's doing cult leader, basically. Hmm. But the thing is, we've seen cult leader before. Like, I don't think Harrow's ever going to be anyone's favorite villain. He's... He's not particularly strong, even among other fours, phase four villains at, mm. four, at this point. Up against Agatha, he lacks a lot of camp. He does have a a dark charisma that I think lends to the character that he's playing here. Mm. And, you know, where most villains would be paying lip service to what they're preaching to their followers, he does seem to legitimately believe what he is uh, saying to everyone else. You know, he does 
ultimately submit to a Met at the end and say, mm-hmm. I'll take whatever you want to give me. If I if it's my role to die here today, then that it is what it is. Uh, we don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. Um, he's walking around with a lot of pain. Uh, one of my favorite small moments, Blink and You Miss It, uh, performances came from Ethan Hawke at the near the uh, middle of the first episode where uh, he sees Stephen in the crowd mm. and you just see this look of recognition, anger, and a little bit of fear in uh, Harrow's face when he realizes uh, who Stephen is from the uh, attack in the desert. Uh, just that little moment there just captured something for me. Yeah. There's a bit of venom in there as well, because obviously the symbiote feels in many versions of the black costume saga rejected by Peter. And so it takes all of that anger and, and kind of turns it into the venom creature uh, with with Eddie and, and feeding off Eddie's resentment, which, again, uh, it feels like they had more ingredients for venom in this than the venom movie. I well, was actually a little bit surprised by how not impressed by Harrow I was because I really like Ethan Hawke. I have very much appreciated a lot of his performances, especially when he was younger. But I prefer young Jesse to old Jesse. Well, yeah. The fact that Harrow is such an understated villain, I think, acted against them. Hmm? I think they could have done with making that cult leader thing a bit more overblown. Yes, it would have leaned over into silly, potentially, Hmm. but I think you really needed to bring up that sense of of him being a threat, especially considering that this doesn't feel especially connected to the rest of the MCU at the moment. It means that the... The danger in this world at the moment is really tiny. It's a cult leader who's not that great at being a cult leader. Yeah. Um, you don't have any of those overarching, but there's other villains behind it or anything like that. I mean, yes, the, the fact that it's sort of he's he's working on behalf of... Um, in fact, actually, no, this, this counters it even more. He is working on behalf of an Egyptian god, mm. but it's an, it's an Egyptian god that's been outcast by all the other Egyptian gods, which means that even if Amit does get to come and have her moment in the sun, there's an entire pantheon that's going to be working against her. So, Eddie, in your pantheon, I am also kind of a loser. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> but, but I think there was also this slightly meta thing that I could not get away from. And the timing of it may have been entirely coincidental, but I I don't know if anybody else heard about it. Ethan Hawke mouthing off about not being in a Marvel movie. It was a while ago, but yeah. But the the point He was like, ah, these fucking... That's because every journalist asks every actor, so what do you think about these uh, Marvel movies? It's not their fault. And we only hear about the ones who give juicy rebuttals to Marvel's uh, dominance. the algorithm will put anything that mentions Marvel first and foremost in front of everything else, and I completely understand. The way that the news... Yoan Griffith says, fuck Marvel. The way that entertainment news is delivered at the moment moment is bad it is undermining to uh, smaller films anything that's it is unimaginative it is boring absolutely and, and i love vanity where... fair by the way they get they put uh, actors in with a bunch of puppies and say talk us through your favorite roles yeah. and it's not asking them questions about pissing marvel but it is very unfortunate irrelevant because... questions by the way this podcast is brought to you by uh, honeycomb cereal Come on, you guys, it's only a little. A hungry giant! 
Hungry for a big honey taste. Big taste, honeycomb, big taste. reportage and the discussion around superhero movies is unimaginative and boring, that leads the, the discourse to a place where they say superhero movies are unimaginative and boring, to which I would reply, well, that depends entirely on which superhero movie you're looking at. Yeah. But my point if being... If it's the Batman. <laughs> that Ethan Hawke having been kind of picked up with this, what I'm sure was a ridiculously low-level passing remark about you're not anybody in Hollywood right now unless you've done a Marvel, mm-hmm. um, then having him do a Marvel, it kind of smacked of one of us, one of us. We can't oh, have I? you talking smack about us, Ethan. You've got to come and take take the, the, the paycheck. I'm sorry I did a Marvel. <laughs> 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 but I couldn't I couldn't quite and it's it doesn't it doesn't interfere with his performance, it really doesn't, but I could not quite shift that thought mm. from the back of my head. I th- think he's actually effective when he's the doctor. Because he's yes. actually yeah. to a degree convincing in what he's doing, and you're so disoriented that you start to think back on what you've seen and go, could this all be in Mark's head? Probably not, because they actually want Moon Knight to exist in in this world, or maybe I feel like the actual turn to the asylum should have actually come a little bit earlier. It would have given episode five more time to get the uh, the tragedy uh, dealt with as well. And would have seen less sort of specificity. The first shot in this movie, the first shot in this show is Ethan Hawke merrily putting broken glass in his shoes for no apparent reason. He's not self-flagellating the whole rest of the time. I don't know why he's hurting his own feet. But it's so weirdly specific, and Stephen is nowhere near it, that when he starts saying, I'm a doctor, you're like, but we saw you put glass in your shoes. And Stephen didn't imagine that, did he? And then at the end, he's rumbled with the payoff for this, with that his feet are bleeding. And it's like, well, that that proves it then. That proves what? That he's got (laughs) bunions? That only works as a tip-off to the audience, unless Mark knows about it. It's a weird setup, a weird payoff, and it only undermines the effectiveness of the actually everything you thought was a delusion, which felt like 12 monkeys. When Bruce Willis is being told throughout that these dreams of time travel are just that, mm. they're dreams. Well, it's not. 12 monkeys is shot in such a way that you're like, maybe he is just mad. Yeah, it's, it's not Gilliam, an so. uncommon trope, and it is often done very, very poorly. Mm. And I think the way they did it here worked pretty well. Mm. I, I especially like the fact that there were shifts and changes in uh, Dr. Harrow's office. It wasn't always the same decor. The asylum itself didn't always look the same, so it keeps that sort of slight disorientation. You get no fixed sense of this is the physical Mm. world because it never changes. All the uh, actors uh, who were recurred from the earlier episodes coming back as people who were in the asylum was a great touch. Mm. Uh, Reminded me of Sucker Punch starring Oscar Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. In evil mode. Uh, I did say this to you the other day. I, I Like, this is a way better version of Sucker Punch. I, well, agreed. Absolutely agreed. It's taken me a while to warm up to Oscar Isaac. And I oh, yeah. Blame, I originally hated him. Yeah, I X Machina, Sucker Punch and X Machina. Because he's so evil in both of those. So when everybody was raving about him as Poe, I was like, yeah. He's all right. And then he's just so instantly <laughs> charming. So you talk first, I talk first. Yeah, he was he was great, but it, it took 
quite a bit to kind of overcome that. Hmm. That now, and I re- because of this, I now really, really like him. Yeah. So it achieved uh, that. I just remembered the what the best thing I liked about Ethan Hawke's performance as Harrow was uh, in the the last episode when when they released Amit, and it's because it's not said, but it's very clear if you're paying attention to his face that Harrow wants Amit to kill him. He thinks he deserves to be punished, hmm. and when she doesn't, and instead he's trapped, basically being another avatar, which again is heavily implied he hated being Khonshu's avatar hmm. and it's just like like his his personal desires are clearly conflicting with what he believes like because he he definitely believes in Ahmed is right and that prejudgment is the way to paradise and stuff like that but he really doesn't want to be her avatar you know felt like a lot of his motivation in the first five episodes was to punish Kanchu for the pain that Kanchu put him through and he's trying to get away from that and seeking out Amit and it's come full circle now he's right back where he started again mm. let's cover Layla as well how was she did did she feel sympathetic oh, did yeah. it feel wrong that Mark had hidden stuff he definitely knew from mm. her yeah yeah I, I think the if this if like professional courtesy, if you're going to enter into a romantic relationship with a woman, just say, I'm a bit of a mess first. Just so you know, I'm more than just a mercenary. The sense of her being a, a, a baked-in part of Mark's life. I, at, at first, I was kind of a bit thrown by the fact that she suddenly appears so far into the story. Mm. And there was a part of me that was thinking I really would have liked to see more of her before that so that we got a bit more of a run-up to it. Mm. But because she comes in fully formed as a wife who's been there for ages, it's just that Stephen didn't know anything about her, it means she doesn't have to kind of run uphill to ingratiate herself with, mm. with the audience because she's she's already got that level of commitment with Mark, who is also new to us. It's like they come mm. to us as a couple, which serves the purpose of making Mark very distinct from Stephen, who is very much a loner. As opposed to thinking Marla Singer is horrible and insane for most of Fight Club and then going, wow, I feel really sorry for Marla by the end. Yeah, but I thought the, the, the performance was superb. I thought she, she's really convincing in those moments when she needs to be afraid, when she needs to be confused. Um, I thought her pop as the character who they have, I believe, now named as Scarlet Scarab. Scarlet Scarab. I called her Hawk Girl because she's Hawk Girl. Well, yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) And does so much more with her awesome winged armour than Wonder Woman 1984, who just killed a cat. Um, Drowned it, she did. (laughs) Also the fact that she's not just a character who turns up and does girl duties she has a backstory she has there is something about her yes all right it's her dad but there is something about her that connects this to the story from from early mm. on and gives her stakes and um, a, a reason to be involved in what's going on here other than I'm here for my man yeah. which is unfortunately I, common I also like that she's savvy enough to say no fuck off to Konshu when he's like <laughs> You are going to be my avatar. And she's like, no, nah, I need to be remain me. Mm, yeah, I did like actually that, that that made clear the point. The fact that she then becomes the avatar of uh, Tawaret. Tarwinit. Tarwinit. It makes it very clear that, that these gods don't just get to come down and grab you to be their avatar. Mm. You have to agree to it. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Nobby's Nuts. Let me get some drinks. No, let me. 
Waiter, drinks all around. Well, if we're going to make a party of it, let's nibble Nobby's nuts. It's so strange that Tarwana is in the most child-friendly episode. Like, every kid would be... Just the, meeting a giant hippo lady in really awesome Egyptian garb, and then the immediate response is to... I, I love, by the way, the Mark and Stephen together. Mm -hmm. Like, when it escalated to that, that was wonderful. And I never saw that... Like, it's... I never even questioned it. I stopped trying to work out where... Oscar Isaac ended, and apparently his brother was the stunt double for a lot of the like clever shots. Yeah, a lot of the, the shots where, and where he began. Two of them stood next. But to having them both scream the way they but did that, that is, is so child friendly. That is clearly a part of it that's really appealed to people. I've been browsing through some uh, Moon Knight fanfic, and hmm. so much of it is to do with the interaction between Stephen and Mark. Yeah, that was some of my favourite stuff. Hmm. Because ultimately, uh, this will come back when we talk about the DID. It is a sympathetic portrayal of feeling in two minds about something on a terminal level. Mm. But yeah, anything on Layla? I thought she was a great addition. With Steven, she's a little like the, you know, the super competent badass love interest. But it kind of, it evens out, especially once they get to the tomb. Mm. She feels less in her element. Like her extended thing of running with dealing with the mummy, I thought was pretty good. Yeah. She's it's a little bit wild scary. style, who in turn is a little bit Trinity. Yes, but uh, she's great. I love the idea that the she's she's basically a reworking of Moon Knight's traditional love interest, oh. Marlene, and who has the same basic backstory that she was the the, the daughter of a archaeologist that like say exactly what we saw that the archaeologist found Conchu's tomb. Mark was there. Mark's partner murdered him. Whole shebang. But they just reworked her into being an Egyptian character, which I thought was very cool. And then doubling down by giving her the Scarlet Scarab identity, which is a, a separate existing superhero, even less than Moon Knight. Like, this guy doesn't show up at anything, so I see why they just took his We'll have that name, identity. thank you very much. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but but the, the addition of Layla as an Egyptian character was, a, I believe, a, a specific... Um, idea of the director Mohammed Diab um, wanted to introduce that element very early on in the the um, workshopping of the so show. that it felt less like cultural misappropriation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Choices of music, yeah. by the way, extremely on point. It really felt like a celebration of culture rather than a pilfering. Because ultimately, when you're dealing with ancient tombs, the idea of grave robbing does kind of rear its ugly head. You kind of have to you have to meet that head on. Yeah, I like that. It's a sort of undiscussed element that she, she's like a tomb raider basically, mm. and but I think it's implied she sometimes steals from museums under the justification. It they, doesn't belong in a museum. <laughs> yes, she's exactly. the Robin Hood of uh, <laughs> uh, tomb thieves. Yeah, that's somewhat in my ballpark. And I was also amused that trying to design a new original Egyptian superhero, they just basically fell upon Hawk Girl. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to avoid. Like, yeah, I mean, you can make her a jackal, a bird, or a crocodile. Those are your options. Yeah. Or a hippo. Or a well, I mean, she or could be a cat. But they yeah, but then you fall the into the, the cheetah problem. Yeah, true. I mean, I mean, they already have the Black Panthers associated That's true, with yeah. Bast. Mm -hmm. 
like specifically the god the Egyptian goddess mm. of cats. So it did feel like there was only way they could go was bird. I love the the fact that also she has kind of a, a slightly militaristic background, so her fighting style was very falcon as well. Mm. Well, they tried to make her fighting style like street fightery. Yeah. She's very competent, very capable. You know, I think there's another version of the show where she's just uh, the wife in the background who needs to be saved all the time. But here we see her getting to save uh, Stephen and Mark more than once. Um, and just put in that, you know, uh, really positive light for me. Uh, and I, I appreciated her performance a lot. Yeah. Marvel that- are in that transitionary stage, so they haven't quite developed girls who do crap things, but they are trying to move away from girls who are gaslit and abused? Maybe. Maybe. But I, the other thing I liked was the fact that, that Layla has a connection with the peripheral people in the story as well. She has a mentor, she has friends that they um, that they have to deal with. It's mm. not just, she's not an accessory. Yeah. I also enjoyed, basically, she has the opposite relationship as Mark and Conchu does with a Tawet. Because Tawet is very nice, and is like she she really wants Ta- Layla as her avatar, but she's not going to force the issue until Layla decides it. Mm. And I don't know. It, I guess it's mostly just because it comes from Tawet being a very bubbly character. Yeah, but so, I, I love the little interactions they had when Tawet has to talk through the corpses, basically yeah. to talk to Layla. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like everyone was talking about how uh, creepy uh, Doctor Strange was, but we'd just come off of like some really creepy stuff on on Moon Knight, so I was leaning into it already. It didn't, it didn't. It, it, I mean, if anything, it kind of made it feel more in place in the MCU already, just in time. This podcast was brought to you by Richer, Smoother Nescafe Gold Blend. Hello, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm having a dinner party and I ran out of coffee. It's a very sophisticated coffee. How's the coffee? The coffee. We uh, share the same taste in coffee. You can't resist my coffee. Coffee's right there. Could I have you a coffee? Great coffee. Came round for coffee. Our tasting coffee. Do we have time for a coffee? Golden roasted, richer, smoother Nescafe Gold Blend. Coffee. 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 Excellent coffee. A substitute for sex from Nestle. There are so many issues that I have with episode 5, and it all but breaks the entire series for me. It doesn't, but it almost did. And the weird thing is, these issues could have been fixed by paying attention during the story writing and consulting with psychologists on this particular matter, especially those that specialize in children and trauma, and making one simple change. So with the flashbacks to childhood in episode 5, Moon Knight makes a sharp right turn into gothic tragedy, which just happens to be one of my wheelhouses. Long story short, Mark had a little brother. They went exploring one afternoon and the brother drowned. After this, their mother was shattered by the bereavement, blamed little Mark, verbally and psychologically abused him, and then graduated to physical by busting into his bedroom and beating him with a belt from the sounds of it, on the regular. And the way the story is written and shot and edited, Mark, at this exact point, creates the Stephen persona. Inspired by a low-budget Indiana Jones-type character, he creates the innocent, affable, defenseless Stephen Grant. 
Stephen is then brought out whenever the beatings arise, taking horrendous damage from this broken mother. Think about this, folks. Really turn it over in your brain and understand that I am approaching this scenario as both a writer of gothic melodrama and someone whose father repeatedly visited similar abuse on. This pressed some of my most sensitive buttons. The way I see it, this story makes sense the other way around. And I've been watching a lot of Nando V movies recently, so this is similar to his One Small Change videos that he does. Like I said, the turn was incredibly abrupt. It would have served the story better to have our hero see his brother occasionally in flashes during the earlier hallucinations in episodes 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 so that we can lean into this potentially being the crucible of his D.I.D. Also, Stephen hallucinates all kinds of dingoes and mummies that he runs around avoiding, but reliving the cave incident and being immersed in terrifying cold water in the dark would also lead us to the traumatic triggers. Like, we'd go, oh, as opposed to, oh, this is a new scenario that I've not seen before. It's been completely buried and unexplored. The, the idea being, if you can bury it, but it will resurface in different ways. And symbolically it is. The trauma that he experiences is, is reliving trauma of another kind. But that's diff that's, that's, it's, you, you can do that more deftly, visually, on screen, with the kind of things he hallucinates. Which, by the way, he, they had total free reign with, in terms of what, what's real and what's not. But that's less crucial than the next part. And this would have been a fine substitute for any number of fights and chats with Ethan Hawke and his creepy, boring cult. Like the amount of runtime that this aspect of Moon Knight did not get that everything else did. They, they spent ages talking with a really lovely hippopotamus with creepy hands. But she ultimately didn't play into the story as importantly as this scenario. We needed to spend a little bit more time with Mark and his brother before the tragedy, establish a rapport between them, and also illustrate their mother's potential for obsessive, abusive despair, rather than the six seconds on screen where she is pretty much identical to Hawkeye's barbecue wife. She's like, we're going to cook up some burgers and dogs. See you later, alligator. And it's like, this doesn't seem like a lady. I mean, that, that's the thing. We make assumptions that can happen to anyone, but just a little bit more time with her and we can lean into that turn and go, okay, I understand this. Of the brothers, in my version of things, one is tougher and bigger, the other is sweet-natured, hapless, and endlessly loving. Same as in the show. They go to the cave, the little one is scared to go in, the bolder one pushes it, and they go too far. The accident occurs, just a slip and a rock in the wrong place. But we see the circumstances rather than hiding them. I don't know why they were so coy with the specifics of this scenario. You didn't want to upset kids. Oh, because nothing else in Moon Knight might upset kids. Like what's coming, for example. Kids who understand know a bit more and can empathize are better informed kids, psychologically and emotionally. You actually have kind of a duty to your audience in this kind of scenario. So, the accident occurs, just a slip and a rock in the wrong place. But we see the circumstances rather than hiding them. The bigger brother very clearly shoves the little one to safety at the cost of his own life. And Stephen survives. He is blamed for the death of his older brother, same as the show. 
And when his mother comes for him in a rage, Mark is there again. Mark is tougher, he's the armour, he can take the beatings and spit out the blood, he protects Stephen. He is the part of the boy's brain that allows him to cope with this dreadful, tragic loss made so much worse by the betrayal and destructive rage of his mother and the gutless inaction of his doormat father. Think about this in more literal terms. Imagine if there was a third brother who got killed and the mother blamed both brothers. If the bigger, tougher one hid behind the smaller, weaker one, using him as a human shield, how do we as an audience feel about that person? How do we feel about like what that's going to do to the little brother? The way that I'm doing it, at her funeral, Mark, in a fit of similar unresolved grief, leaves Stephen. It means that Stephen, who was born Stephen, can love a mother that he doesn't remember as being only entirely cruel and savage to him, which is massively contradictory to the way that Stephen thinks of her on screen, with only love and no fear or anger. Look what happened when Ethan Hawke was like, do you want to call your mother? And then he is grief-stricken. It's like, oh, you mean that, that woman who did nothing but beat me 100% of the time? Those feelings of fear and anger are there in Stephen, absolutely, but they are never connected with this seemingly forgotten woman. In the version of Moon Knight that was screened, those emotions of fear and anger were there, absolutely, but they were never connected with this seemingly forgotten woman. My way, it means that Stephen can remain childlike the way that Oscar Isaac performs him, because like the Hulk, he hasn't had the chance to be in control and growing. It is clearer that Mark was very often in control to protect him. So Mark's been doing the, he's been forced to grow up very, very fast. It's incredibly unfair on him, but he's the armor. And that's just the psychological side. If you want real world logistics, this one little change functions better there too. It means, let's tick these off, that Stephen can work at a museum, be paid to a bank account that says Stephen Grant. It means he can live in an apartment where the name on the lease is Stephen Grant. It means that at night, Mark can go a-wandering and become a mercenary, letting out his pent-up and hidden frustrations, being the kind of ruthless, shady guy who can get access to fake passports that say Mark Spectre. The Spectre! The literal Spectre! is also an inversion of the comic that would kind of catch comic fans by surprise. Hell, if the absolute worst stuff was done by Jake, you can even keep Mark somewhat of the dark heroic kind and not a monster, which Mark often comes off as. But again, this all needs to be happening with a man born as little Stephen Grant, not as Mark Spector. The last change I would have made, and this is a tiny one, would have been to tease Jake at an earlier part of the ending, if at all, and not have him be the final note of this concerto. That left a sour taste for reasons we're about to go into. Potential conflicts for the future are important, but less so than telling a complete excellent story right now. Conchu being the overarching villain that Mark and Steve need to overcome is a great plan moving forwards, and Jake being his lackey complicates things delightfully. Though it's not without being problematic for reasons I'm about to go into. It was really just the mode of that last scene and the placement that was my issue. So here's the way it ends in my version, the same as it began. Engelbert Humperdinck, who I thought was Tom Jones, <laughs> Alarm clock every day. Every day I wake up, then I start to break up. Lonely is the man without love. Mark wakes up this time, 
Same as in the show. The beginning of the first episode, it was Stephen waking up in that apartment. So something has changed. And I totally applaud that. That's a great ending. Then the tiny change I would make is that Mark asks, Stephen? Stephen, you there? And he gets no answer. This upsets him and it would make us worry as an audience. Have we lost the side of him that we've also grown so fond of too? We don't just want to be left with Mark. He's a lot less fun. Mark gets up in alarm and on leaving the bed immediately falls on his face. Crane shot of Mark lying on the floor until Stephen mumbles, Yeah, I'm here. Our hero isn't cured. They are going to have a challenging life, but now they can face the big and the small and the crazy together, knowing how important each of their perspectives is. Same scene, different timing, funnier, sadder, more empowering, different placement of Jake Stinger, better effect. Like the wallpaper sticks to the wall. Like the sea shark clings to the sea Like you'll never get rid of your shadow Frank, you'll never get rid of me Let all the others fight and fuss Whatever happens We've got us We're closer than pages that stick in a Let's talk about the general handling of the DID, and especially outside of episode 5. That's dissociative identity disorder. It's very rare. It affects between 0.1% and 1% of the population. It can occur at any age, and women are more likely than men to have it. It's usually the result of some form of trauma. It's a way for someone to distance or detach themselves from that. And it absolutely is livable, especially assisted with psychotherapy. The symptom of memory loss is accurate because there's a core identity, that's the original personality, and at least one alter or alternate personality. So in the text of the show, Stephen is Mark's alter. In my revised version, Mark is Stephen's alter. And Jacob, we'll talk about Jacob soon. I have done some checking up on this. It is not our field of expertise. We are not psychologists. We are not specialists in this. But uh, I I definitely, uh, with some help from uh, people like Kevin on the uh, Discord, found some people who actually have been dealing with. Uh, In the case of uh, uh, one person that I uh, watched, they had actually attached uh, a dissociative disorder to their own sense of gender dysphoria, where they had a male and a, f- a masculine and a feminine side, and they were trying to keep the feminine buried. And ultimately, it became a case of 
bringing this side of the mountain, talking with them till they could eventually forge between both sides a balanced identity and they finally felt whole. So obviously watching Stephen and Mark, like Mark saying, the only superpower I've ever had is you. I love that. The way of, of allowing people who have to, to live with this stuff, which is way less obvious, clear, and visual as we as just dimbo-dumbo regular audiences require to have something this complex and this sometimes scary and not visual scenario play out on screen and end in a way that felt like uh, the end was a, 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 a both a moral and an emotional victory. There's a but coming, but... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, what, what did you uh, what did you think about the way it was handled throughout all six episodes? Generally speaking, and as you say, not my field of expertise at all. While I am familiar with and versed in some elements of, of mental health issues, DID is definitely not one of the the things that I've studied and specialised in at all. So the the framing of various different aspects of somebody's internal life that comes out in in different ways it's the the degree to which this needs to be expressed when you you're showing somebody who has this this disorder i thought they found quite a good balance of of how that was done because while there are definite visual changes when Mark becomes Stephen and vice versa. And and sometimes they're really subtle and you, you have to really look for them. Obviously, occasionally you see the his eyes go white when the actual change occurs. Mm. But there's also things like their hair is often slightly different. Mm. It's the, not as obvious and visual as the way Gollum and Smeagol were portrayed exactly. in The Lord of the Rings. There's um, different faces and different expressions that they gave to one or the other yeah. and never both. And again, this partly comes down to Oscar Isaac's performance in that he was able to use a different stance, a different walk, a different... It's not just the accent, it's the tone of the voice. It's the the way that he communicated is different for both of them. And I really appreciated the way that that was put across. It was It, it did not fall into what so frequently happens when uh, filmmakers try to use this disorder as a, as a narrative device where every personality that comes forward is completely different in a very over-the-top way. Split. And yeah, I wasn't going to say it, but yes. Split. Split. Um, Raising Cain with yeah, John Lithgow. Did, but- there's some good ones like Sybil, David and Lisa, Black Swan, Primal Fear, and a lot of bad ones like Glass and Secret Window, Identity, Me, Myself and Irene, Dressed to Kill, The Cell, The Ward, The Uninvited, Hide and Seek, X-Men The Last Stand, Color of Night, My Bloody Valentine, Never Talk to Strangers, and a bunch that I won't spoil because multiple personalities, and it was the protagonist who did it, is the twist. And they're not as awful as those above, but they're still a bit awful. Because, of course, Hitchcock's Psycho, which was so good that everybody copied it and made the altar a murderous, frequently cross-dressing predator. And with all that media out there demonising trans folk, and very little in the way of high-profile, sympathetic counterpoint, these movies and the decisions of their creators have made lives measurably worse. I don't like using sweeping terms like always, but it is so, so often that it may as well be always. That the whole point of it is there is a personality who is a bad evil psycho that is going to kill everybody. Split. 
<sighs> the, and it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, gents, before we get into uh, Jake, who is a personality that wants to kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I like that. I'm no expert on DID either, but I, I really like that it, in the end, it's never about fixing the DID, but it's about markets even embrace, embracing each other and uh, their different aspects of themselves. Uh, you know, they're they're allowed to come to accept each other, and the condition isn't demonized. Uh, mm. They're allowed to gain power over it instead of letting it have power over them, mm. um, and that felt really special to me. We don't get to see that very often when this sort of thing is presented in film. Like you said, it's usually uh, evil versus good, and at the end of the day, one of them triumphs over the other. Here we get to see them come together and uh, reconcile themselves. The scales are balanced. Yeah. And also yeah, I, the fact that it's the, the the DID is not the superpower. Hmm. The uh, the there's a line I think I, I can't remember if it's Harrow, but somebody says, uh, "Did Konshu break your mind, or did he, he come after you because you were already broken, or, hmm. or something along those lines?" And and part of me was thinking it's actually really inconvenient to Konshu that that. Mark is not always yeah. a person. Like, oh, the that idiot's in control. He yeah. doesn't like that. No, he doesn't. He wants and, someone boring and a yes man. Yeah. And Jake will do that but shit for you. In the same vein, I also really like the fact that both Mark and Stephen. Oh my god, Conshu's like Lamont Cranston. He has to have that. <laughs> he has to be ferried around all the time by a murderous butler. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the fact that both Mark and Stephen have their own versions of the Moon Knight persona, mm. it, it reinforces this feeling that they are both the same person. It's just mm. that they are interacting with each other within that, that body. As I understand it, I haven't read these uh, Deadpool comics, but Deadpool went through something similar where he had at least two personalities that were expressed in two different types of text. I think it may have occurred when he was split directly in half down the middle mm. and both sides grew into a Deadpool of their own. But oh. uh, And then what came back together again? I, I think they were somehow unified, but yeah. it was a way of Deadpool to effectively talk to himself mm. rather than having to have a Harley Quinn all around all the time. When Or just talk to the uh, reader. Isn't it interesting that Harley Quinn was put there to make the Joker less scary and ended up being a more interesting character than the Joker, at least to me? Mm. I, really, I really like, I mean, again, I will also say my lack of psychological credentials, but I, I did enjoy it. It, this show seems to be part of a trend I've noticed in a couple of bits of media where like the the idea is like you can't cure your mental illness it's mm. it's something that's a part of you and you have to learn to embrace it and I mean they basically literally do that because Mark and Stephen hug at one point but uh, before you get into the whole Jake thing I thought the whole thing was very well handled the show basically treats them as two people living in a single body mm. up to the point that like when they travel to the a metaphysical plane like a goddess acknowledges them as two separate individuals mm. up to having two separate souls yeah i'm not gonna harp on too much about jake because it might date we've we've got very little information the fact that the whole six episode run was uh you know ultimately made people who do in fact uh, suffer from did feel seen and then seen is 
commendable and I would hope and I would give the benefit of the doubt and credit that the end of season two or whatever this he, he reappears as a bit character in Echo or whatever they decide to do. They have Marvel have been very tight lipped again because they now want to be reactive and work out is Moon Knight meme worthy? In in which case being like, ooh, same time, next time, do you what do you what do you want more of this? Otherwise we just sort of leave this unresolved. Um it's <laughs> That smacks a little bit of like the end of X-Men 3 where Magneto may or may not get his Magneto powers back yet and Charles may be dead or he may be in the body of a comatose mutant whom we don't see and they never come back to that and just sort of hand wave it in years to come. What an awful film that is. Anyway, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but it is still one of the aspects of this Moon Knight character is a cold-blooded murderer. And that is a problem that could be made more interesting if Jacob has his own stuff going on and could feasibly be reincorporated as part of the party line in uh, the, in, in the head of this, this chap, as opposed to, yay, we shot the bad person out of us. I do think, <laughs> having read the, the Asylum storyline, yeah. that... There are, I'm not going to spoil or go in depth in that because it, it doesn't have that much direct bearing on this uh, this story, although they did mm. seem to take a lot of the, the uh, conceptual stuff from it. I am going to spoil it a bit because okay. ultimately if folks really wanted to read Moon Knight, they'd have done it and by they now. They would have done it by now, that's fair enough. But what I was going to say was Jake is definitely more of a person in that and I could see elements of how he's written in that story mm. being brought into the show yeah. if they do a season two. Yeah. Uh, the, the the big bad that they have to overcome at the end is is ultimately Konshu in uh, uh, Asylum. We didn't even read to the end. We read book one of two. Mm. And Amazon divided it into either one complete volume or three separate volumes. So it is literally impossible for us to just buy book two of this two-book series. Well done, Amazon, again. Uh, but the end of this first of the two arcs, uh, and I'm sure he'll be back, but it came down to uh, Mark and Stephen both realising that Konshu was the one they needed to remove from their life. He was the an outsider trying to manipulate them, not part of who they are. And he was only doing so for his own gain and his own ends. And the the, the moving past an abusive, uh, especially an abusive male figure like that, which ties in with the whole doctor trying to gaslight you into believing that what that what is real to you isn't real to anyone else so must be obliterated yeah uh it it felt like a, a serious victory at the uh, at this halfway point in the 14 issue run and then when i saw episode six i was like i kind of wanted that to happen rather than just next time folks no not next time do it now be great now <laughs> Yeah, Jake definitely reads as basically having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. So you have this whole great like, oh, this is kind of more, you know, kind of what dealing with the idea really is. And it's not all that violent, except when it's really that violent because we want to have that. Yeah. And it's it's also, but it's also hard to judge because it, it, Jake is just a sequel hook. We don't really yeah. get anything of him other than he's more violent and speaks Spanish. <sighs> And that's a that's that's a you're right. They're trying to have their cake and eat it. And ultimately, if you can give them praise, if they also want to eat the cake, you take it away for them eating that cake. <laughs> no, no cake for you. Eat your 
vegetables first, Disney. Yeah. Have your vegetables, then eat your cake. That's what the cure <laughs> of this yeah. one is. Yeah. Sadly, I think they're probably going down the bad guy route. Shake. They might, oh, you yeah. know, have them deemed, but like, there's a character in Moon Knight called Shadow Knight mm-hmm. who is basically evil Moon Knight, and in the comics, it's Mark's brother. But they're not going to do that because. He's dead mm. in MCU. So my best guess is that Shadow Knight is probably going to be uh, Jake's Moon Knight, Knight mantle. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, this is very Hulk as well. Like, you know, that the, the Banner is the version that, especially early on, um, Natasha feels a slow connection with. But Hulk scares the shit out of her. So they have to work around that and and frankly what's been done with hulk over the years is is on this a, a similar line of more subtle rather than straight tying it to did mm. way of dealing with various aspects of yourself some of which can be very frightening yeah they both yeah, Mo- riff on the the werewolf um which is ironic concept. isn't it because moonlight began as a uh, antagonist character in werewolf by night which is John Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson's son, who came back from the moon and now turns into Man-Wolf at night where he can fight crime. I still want to see this happen, and I want J.K. Simmons to be in it. And I want Moon Knight to be just this this thorn in his side. He's like, ah! That'd be great. A werewolf, Um, my arch nemesis. Jonah's uh, son is actually a different character, Man-Wolf. The werewolf by night is a dude named... I, I kid you not, his name is Jack Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Does he turn into a Jack Russell? Because that's even no, better. And then no, become sadly, a professional wrestler. Yeah, I believe that what you've got there is a, is a, a children's book called Woof. Sorry, I got my Marvel werewolves confused. I'm so sorry, folks. I didn't realize there were so many. Uh, Moon Knight's whole th- shtick used to be that, like, at least in those first comics, is all his weapons were made of silver. Ah, that's I why he has werewolves. the right white custom. He just, he was How do you feel about Wendigo? Because like Wendigo is a sad Marvel character who just shrieks his own name all the time, but he's kind of wolfy. I, I think he's indifferent. He got off the, the werewolf thing real quick. I think right. it was just his first appearance, and then he, he started doing the Batman, also Egyptian avatar thing. I, I could have done without Jake. Uh, I, I felt like he took away a little bit from... Stephen and Mark's journey together towards, uh, you know, reconciling with themselves. But now that we have him, I do want to see them do a good job with it. I hope it's not just a means of prolonging the the trauma that Stephen and Mark have, because I would really like to see them just uh, face Kanchu when we see them again. Mm-hmm. But it, it does seem like this is going to be the vehicle Kanchu uses to stay a part of their lives uh, more intimately. So uh, I just hope they tread that ground well and give it uh, the respect that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually reminds me of, if, if anything, the end of WandaVision. You know how uh, the, the whole thing is about grief and trauma and confronting the past and the ugly side of it and letting go and you know making sure that you can actually put yourself in a place that, that you're safe and you're able to grow and you're healing. And at the very end, in the last shot, it's like, so Wanda, she's going to be... Uh, she's not going to be okay, but she's going to be able to maybe get through this. Or is she? Camera turns around, evil wonder. Oh my god, what's gonna happen? I don't know, guys. Uh, tune in next time. <laughs>
<sighs> this, of course, is the problem. Well, I was going to say, actually, no. This is the problem with it being TV. But no, because with movies, they're like, sequel? Yeah. I mean, the only way they don't do that shit is, like, Captain America goes back to the 1940s, dances with Peggy. Or does he? But this is... This <laughs> no, is what, he does. This is what frustrates me about this Tony approach. Stark's dead. <laughs> That's something we know. Or is, is he? he? They, but when they do this, it gives you this sense, or it gives me this sense... There's no closure. The Well, exactly. There's no feeling of, of characters being able to, to go on a journey and get to a point mm. where they feel content and resolved and that they yes obviously that doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect from here on in but that they have a handle on who they are now and how they live their life now and in response to the approach of but then where does your drama come from where does your intrigue come from how are you supposed to have tension if everybody's done all their therapy and is now feeling much better young people new characters coming in and yeah. and bringing new complexes and and trauma and stuff because that's the world that's what it is yes young people experiencing trauma aka the past five years yeah exactly um another one give the poor fuckers a break another one from this five times multiplier speed run that we've just (laughs) we're we're still in the middle of uh at the end of black widow uh yelena goes to uh natasha's grave and whistles and the whole audience is leaning forwards going we know one thing to be true natasha is dead or is she? And then Julia Louise Dreyfus turns up and fucking ruins the whole thing. Anyway, um, it's too Gen Xy. Can't win. Don't try. Yeah, but I mean, like the original way that that stinger scene was written, there was going to be a call and response with the whistle, which would have been the or is she moment. This podcast is sponsored by D Tea Bags, a brand I was reminded of by Jim Stephanie Sterling. I think every now and then we could all do with a D for all your teabagging needs. I did like the way they handled the Egyptian gods, specifically that they went seemed to have gone out of their way to not use your bog stat like Isis and Osiris and Horus show up as like cameos basically with their yeah. avatars. I actually did the research. Khonshu was actually a fairly popular god in ancient Egypt times, but nonetheless doesn't get talked about a lot. Very these popular days. with the Hittites. <laughs> He was like a god of healing and stuff, and he, he was he was semi important. Probably not important as like Ra, like Ra doesn't even get mentioned in this yeah. story. But like we got uh, Khonshu, and we got Tauret, who I'd never heard of before. And then the, the main villains Amit. They do change a lot. Like I think in, in Egyptian mythology, Amit is more like Cerberus. Really, she just guards the underworld and eats you know eats the hearts if you're found unworthy. Which is where the whole scale thing comes in. Ah, I see. So but she, she just, wasn't she like got a, hungry. She was like, "I'm not getting yeah. enough unworthy people. I'm going up top to find more unworthy yeah. people." 
basically. But like she wasn't, as far as I could tell, a goddess people actually worshipped. I really liked how mythology played such a prominent role here in Moon Knight. You know, we do get to see bits and pieces of it in other parts of the MCU, like in a Thor and um, a little bit in the Eternals, but that seems to me more window dressing. Uh, here, it's ingrained in the story, and we get to experience all this. And you don't really see that a lot, especially Egyptian mythology in Western uh, media. It, it doesn't get a lot of attention. I enjoyed learning a little bit more about it, and it has kind of inspired me to go and seek out more of it myself outside of this. It does worry me a little bit that that so many of these films now, their end pieces and their stingers are setting up follow-ups, which may or may not really happen, at least on the scale that they were set up. So, for example, the end of The Eternals ends on a cliffhanger. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? And then people just did not dig The Eternals. Like, we're not getting a second Eternals film, so... Every, like, the actual resolution of that scenario is going to have to happen in some big crossover as a E or F plot. We've now got a big stone giant that everybody on Earth has to resolutely ignore. Oh, yeah. oh giant hand. Yeah, perfectly normal thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember that stinger at the very end of Doctor Strange 2016, six years ago as I record this, where Mordo, Chiwetel Ejiofor, was hunting down other sorcerers and sucking the magic out of them? Originally, that plotline was going to be resolved slash abandoned at the beginning of Doctor Strange 2. I won't spoil how, but look it up. It'll blow your mind. I mean, this happens in in comics as well, where they, they teased the third Summers brother so many times and never really resolved it until they did. And now the average person won't know who the third Summers brother was. I don't know about you 40 year olds, but I was rooting for Adam X aka extreme he could like cut you and then like pour lemon juice in your cuts with his mutant power he was totally rad and like had blades on his costume and a backwards baseball cap which seems impractical also if you were reading x books around that time you'll remember bishop was convinced that Gambit was going to betray the X-Men because he'd seen a corrupted video of Jean Grey saying had betrayed the X-Men. That one took years to resolve, but did so quite satisfyingly in Onslaught. It's a risk of ultimately of of long-form storytelling, and we've not really experienced this beforehand on this scale. So they're now getting into a a point where the, the, the output is churning faster than most people can really keep up. So, like, you know, people on the Discord are like, I'm finally going to watch Black Widow today. It's like, wow, you're behind. <laughs> and that's completely understandable. It's, you know, we may have had lockdown over and uh, on and off again for the past couple of years. That doesn't mean everyone's been sitting around twiddling their thumbs. We've all had stuff to do and, uh, you know, different things to make the increasing lengths of boredom go by. Anyway. It's definitely it's like a problem that you might run into with how much content we have of just plot lines forgotten. It's not Mm. something that hasn't happened in the MCU before, or do you not remember when the Incredible Hulk set up the leader? Oh, yeah. I don't don't think anybody remembers that. Or do you remember Scorpion? Yep. Or do you remember Scorpion showing up in the first Tom Holland movie, Spider-Man movie? We waited years for the return of Abomination, and then suddenly, oh, he's in Shang-Chi, and then Tim Roth reprising his 2008 role of Emil Blonsky in She-Hulk. Bring back Liv Tyler as Betty, you cowards. 
Now, he was uh, referenced in uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something, wasn't he? They were like, oh, down there, there's an extremely expensive effect. Oh, that's what I was going to talk about. It is kind of annoying, especially in the uh, the last uh, ch- section, where um, Stephen's like, I'm going to have to go to Mark and, and let Mark take control, and he's probably going to be quite... Yeah, and then he's like... It, to, in order to beat his enemy, he goes from his enemy has won to his enemy is now on the floor and everyone around him is dead. And Layla's looking at him in a kind of, whoa, that was extremely violent and expensive. So uh, we just <laughs> we cut that out. That is very much a having your cake and eating it scenario, especially when you've got kids around. But it's like the, the, the fight scenes in Winter Soldier are incredibly intense. You can totally do that in a moon night. It's part and parcel of the final episode of most Marvel TV being a step down from the penultimate episode. I've now gotten so used to the the penultimate episode being where all this stuff comes pouring out, where all the big secrets we're asking ourselves, most of them get answered. And, like, you know, oftentimes it's the one with the best performances in it because the uh, character has to deal with the biggest, heaviest stuff. And then the sixth episode is the traditional Marvel fireworks show where it's actually, you know, in this case we got some kaiju, which was great fun, and a lot of street fighting. And uh, ultimately Mark took it to uh, Harrow. But it made me realise very starkly that Harrow and Mark aren't really philosophically opposed on anything. It's just a case of, like, this is a guy misusing... The, his connected power to uh, to these deities, and I just have to stop him. It's not like they had viewpoints on the world that were just radically different, but at the same time, that this villain was a shadowy reflection of our hero. It it almost felt like, if anything, Harrow needed to be more like Mark in order for that to have any kind of impact. They felt disconnected. If you really want to push it, Harrow is the one telling people that the sins of their past condemn them to damnation in the afterlife and he strikes them from the earth. And part of Mark's journey accepting Stephen as a key part of him also involves forgiving himself for what he considers the murder of a child. But this was not the philosophical meat of their confrontation at the end. Yeah, they, they, they already had the, the philosophical fight in mm. like episode two. Yeah where Steven just tells them off. They're like, you want to kill babies? Is that what we're doing here? And that was basically the end of it. Like, yeah, Steven's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the the actual fighting really took a backseat to the, the personal stories being told here. And mm. I appreciated that. Um, you know, there were some good fight scenes and all, but I think the best one came in episode one, the, the, the car chase scene. Mm. Uh, you know, Children of Men meets Final Destination. In an ice cream truck, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was great fun. I, I did really enjoy that. And, uh, the, uh, you know, Oscar Isaac clearly trained his ass off for the, the parkour and fighting scenes on the uh, rooftops. Uh, I, I, I hope we see this character again. Uh, he's rich enough to appear as a major supporting character in someone else's story. He's rich enough for a season two. I'll be fine if they don't. It's almost better if they don't, because then we kind of get all the good stuff about season one and we can kind of sideline the whole Jake thing or not but ultimately the worst thing would be for them to do a season two and then trample every all the good work they did on this 
Before we go, I have one more thing to run by you. This was brought to my attention by Chris Chipman, and it's a project being put together by Montresor Media, one of our partners on Fireside Alliance. Hello there, listener. My name is Seth Decker, and I am a director. I'm here to sell you something, and it's not Blue Apron or subscription service or MeUndies or anything like that. It's an opportunity to give to a really cool Indiegogo. If you go to Indiegogo.com and type in The Bludgeoning or Montressor Media, you will be greeted by a page for a horror comedy that we've been working on for the last few months. I've been self-financing the pre-production so far. Our hotels are booked. Flights are scheduled for our cast to come in. We are ready to shoot. This Indiegogo is just to help us upgrade our equipment. We know that we can deliver a really killer image on the equipment that we have in-house, but being able to rent some legitimate Hollywood toys would just mean the world to us. We're going to use this Indiegogo to rent an Ari Alexa Mini. That's the same thing they shot Blade Runner 2049 on. We're going to be bringing in a really cool lighting package that allows us to light really amazing colors and bring a really vibrant feel to Salem, where we're going to be shooting the movie on location. I'm excited about this. This is a huge step for me in my career, potentially turning into the ability to to make movies professionally for us and this team. And it's been made possible by all of these cool podcasts that we've been working with as as creative outlets over the years, teaching us how to, to dissect stories. Now we're making our own story. It's really awesome, and I'm so excited. Please go to Indiegogo.com, type in Montressor Media or The Bludgeoning. Every single level has really cool rewards that exponentially get cooler. Just starting off at the $10 level, you're going to get access to a digital comic of this movie. We're going to do a comic adaptation of the movie that you'll get access to just for giving us the 10 bucks to get this project done. Like that in and of itself is amazing. But we have levels going all the way up to a producer level where you could get IMDB credit for a feature film potentially going out through distributors like Lionsgate or Shudder or A24 or The Bludgeoning. That's where we're aiming. No promises yet, but that's where we're aiming. We're guaranteed an Amazon release at this point. So, like, the project is happening. Do you want to buy a ticket onto the train is the question. I'm not selling any kind of subscription service. I'm selling a real cowboy dream of making movies on our own dime, on our own turf, on our own rules. There's no producer studio oversight. We are the ones making this movie. I think that's awesome. I appreciate all your time. I'm sure I've taken enough of your time for this podcast that you're listening to currently. I appreciate you you taking the time to listen to me please consider giving to the Indiegogo or checking us out on social media. If you just want to chat about the project more, I'm here for that. At Montressor Media on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Reach out to us there if you have any burning questions. This isn't celebrities in Hollywood that you can't reach out to. We're real people that you can talk to about an actual professional movie that's being made. I think that's really killer. Please consider giving to the project. So I don't know about you folks, but I'm going to go and back them. The link to the Indiegogo page is in the show notes. And to our guests this week, is there anything you'd like to promote? I don't really do a lot of this podcasting. The only other place you can find me is on a different episode of this very show. But uh, I will boost my best friend, uh, Doc Cobb, who does a show called What the Shell, which is all about 
uh, computer security and hacking and like how hacking really works. It's a it's a really good show if you have no idea how any of that stuff works. Mm. I listen to that show. I will concur. It is really uh, coming at it from somebody who knows nothing about that world. He really opened it up for me, which I really appreciated. Nice, uh, Matt. Anything? Oh, sorry, Nick. Anything from you? Uh, no, nothing for me. But uh, I will uh, second. No, rather third. Uh, the recommendation for Doc Hobbs show. It is rather good. Give it a listen. Uh, so we will be back next week with another Disney show. Uh, only this one's one that uh, we liked pretty much the whole way through. The first and really best season of The Mandalorian. And it coincides with the release of Obi-Wan. So we will see you for that next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's School's out. out. Later, skaters. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember when we walked together Sharing a love I thought would last forever to show the way so we can follow Waiting inside her eyes was my tomorrow Then something changed her mind Her kisses told me I had no love in arms to Cannot face this world that's falling down on me. So if you see my girl, please send her home to me. Tell her about my heart that's slowly dying. Say I can't stop myself from.